Hey guys, and welcome back to Ask Adept Psychologist, a monthly or bi-weekly or weekly or whenever we happen to have the demand podcast where we take your questions submitted at the $10 tier or higher on Patreon and we kick it between ourselves and try and answer them in as much detail as we possibly can. And in today's show we've got four questions lined up for you and you can skip to those questions if you do so choose by checking out the pinned comment down below or the timestamps in the description. And the first question is all about homosexuality which is a actually fairly often requested topic all about what the causes of that might be from a psychological perspective indeed and what Jung would have thought of that particular question. So that was an interesting one to tackle. The next question is all about a perfectionist neurosis, and we talk about dreams within that. So if you yourself tend towards perfectionism, then you'll definitely find the answer to that question useful. Our third question is all about instinct, because we talk about that a lot on Young to Live By. You know, we generally try and distance ourselves from what's so-called archetypal fantasies and instead go down to real basics of what makes you happy and healthy and well-adapted, and that happens to be instincts primarily, first of all. So the question is, what are instincts? What are they? Can, 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 can you name them? Help me. And the final question is all about fantasy and dreams and whether or not fantasies are a good thing, and how is it that when I fantasize, I'm lifted out of depression? What the hell's really going on there? So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast today. As always, you can skip to the right question down below. But for now, we're going to go straight into the very first question, which comes from Moose Man. And I'm going to kick it to Steve and Pauline in the past. And Moose Man's question goes like this. This may be a bit off topic, but it's been running through my mind as of late, and I'm curious to hear the answers from depth psychologists. Forgive me if it seems crude. You are indeed forgiven, sir. What causes an individual to be homosexual? And what is Jung's perspective, if any, on homosexuality? What do you think, Steve and Pauline, in the past? Right, okay. Um, I, I'll, uh, I'll ask him to look that up with respect to, to Jung's attitude, because I don't particularly want to go there, to be honest, because I don't think it's helpful. Um, for two reasons. I broadly do not agree with Jung on the causality of it. And also, as I said in the last podcast, I would be concerned mm. about self-pathologising by reading some of the, the material that's in Carl Jung's books. So I'm sorry if I'm apparently deflecting that, uh, but I think the man should speak for himself. Uh, and I, I just don't support that view at all. I never have. Um, so I'll leave that part of it at that, if that's okay. With that caveat that should you look there, do not self-pathologise. Do not diagnose yourself or either way yeah. um, with respect to that. Because it's an abstraction. You can't speak to the man directly. You can't understand the context of what he wrote mm -hmm. if you cannot mm. question him about it. Mm -hmm. And if he were alive today, nearly 60 years later, we can be certain his views would have changed and his model would have been updated tremendously, uh, along with all the discoveries that have been made outside of his theory. And also he would have internally, so to speak, updated his own approach without a doubt. Mm. So we don't have that. We, we, we don't really know and I, I don't think it's worthwhile going back and looking at how he defined things from within his own time uh, I don't think it's good at all and, and certainly don't diagnose or yourself or anyone uh, on the basis of what might be in there um, with respect to the causes of it I don't believe there is a clear cause uh, I don't think it's pathological um, I don't think necessarily, and I did discuss this, I think, in, in a recent podcast, that it's at all related, so to speak, uh, in a man to his anima as such, except that the sexuality will be expressed through the anima, 
but they're not causal as such in either way. <laughs> so, you know, the basics are obviously it's going to be genetic or it's going to be environmental, but obviously it's more likely to be some mixture between the two in terms of whether even the genetic cause as such uh, will be modified and shaped by the environment, by family members, by the culture, the historical time period within which you live, all of those things. So personally, I have a completely non-pathological perspective on it. It's only abnormal in a statistical sense. Um, people have made in the past an argument that it's abnormal in a reproductive sense because it doesn't serve any purpose reproductively. But then we do have to think about the meaning of sexuality in its broader sense. And I guess when we get to its broader sense, that's where it does link up with relating and therefore the anima in a man as a relating function. Uh, and if we start ascribing a gender to the anima in a broad brush way, as if to suggest it is always wearing a woman's face, should we say, or always uh, clustered around the experience of women in a way that is connected to the expression of sexuality, you're going to run up against problems, even if those problems are only statistical, because there will be a statistical minority, perhaps, of men who do not fit that. But nevertheless, it's statistically significant enough to say there is something wrong with the generalisation. Uh, and that's why I refuse to do it. I, I, I will not ascribe, for example, a gender to the anima on that basis. I just wait and see what a person brings. What their unconscious suggests is the right way for the anima to form as an image. Uh, getting back to causality though, well, you know, obviously some people will have a gentle, should we say, and free choice introduction to this. Others will be directed on the basis of their genetics. Uh, and again, if they're content with that, that's absolutely fine. It's never a problem, sexuality, in my view, unless it's some kind of coercion or force that's used against a victim or whether somebody's sexuality is challenged and changed extrinsically by others against the will of the individual's expression of their sexuality. So in the broadest possible sense, I see nothing wrong with it. Uh, it's an adaptation. It's an authentic way of living a life. Uh, it's not necessarily connected to the gender of the relating function in a man, but it can be. It can be, you know. Um, so with all of those caveats in place, the causality can only be genetic, environmental, or somewhere in between, which is down to your own personal orientation or choice. And if you're happy with that, if somebody said, I think I'm gay, but I'm not happy about it, that's completely different from saying, I think I'm gay and other people aren't happy about it. They're a world apart. Um, and then, of course, there's all the differences in the in the bandwidth of potential of what gay means or doesn't mean with respect to what might normally be classified, say, as bisexuality, that kind of thing. So unless it's troubling somebody, leave it alone. You know, it, it's 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 normal. It, it's human. That would be my answer in broad terms. I would need to know more. I would need to know if he was troubled or unhappy with the possibility for that in himself or in a third party. And I would need to know in the case of a third party whether it was anyone's business really to to, to, to question someone else's sexual orientation or identity. And can I just add this further caveat? 
I'm not saying any of this for politically correct <clears throat> purposes because these are the views I've always had before political correctness existed. Mm -hmm. To me, this is a humanistic value and we hold to humanistic values. Nothing to do with politics. Not interested, left or right. No. Just not interested. I'm interested in people. That's it. You've had a lot of experience clinically too, have. haven't you? That, that is true. I have. To be fair, you have. Yeah, an awful lot. And I think it's because I've always accepted people as people. You know, that, that's it. Um, male or female, gays, bisexuals, or any other variants on that you may you may wish to create psychosocially as a category for, for human experience you know they're all people uh, and as Pauline says I have had quite a bit of experience uh, of working with with people who fall into those categories going through major issues in their lives very often caused by other people I might say so I hope that answers the question it does, it does, it does. It's obviously a complicated question because as you're saying, there's the political element. But I, I was, I've was, i been interested in this for a long time, actually, on like an evolutionary basis, purely intellectual in intrigue. I'm like, ah, this is an interesting phenomenon. I wonder why this exists. And I tried looking at um, the, the genetics-based arguments. They're all nonsense. I've seen like, I've seen Richard Dawkins give, he, he's given the best I've seen sort of succinct summary of all the different theories. There's like the gay uncle theory and there's the male loving gene is one of them, for example. It's like if you have loads of, it's it, it works well for a female's reproductive capacity if they've got a male loving gene because they're more likely to reproduce then that can also be transferred into boys as well making them male loving it, it's just simple as far as i'm concerned and also, and also you know there's the intellectual curiosity side of it which is completely valid and on the other side who cares you know well yeah cares? i mean I, I think the problem for us is that, that we, are, we have a clinical orientation that overrides anything else if i wasn't in in a clinical setting, if I was in a research setting, I'd have a completely different view, mm. but I'm not, you know, and Paul's the same, you know, our view is clinical and not to reduce it to that because what underpins our clinical practice is a fundamental humanistic value towards people. So that, that's the most important thing. I'm familiar with Richard Dawkins' work. It's been around a long time uh, and those various uh, theories, obviously, um, you know, people can go through phases where they express their, their sexuality that way and then they change. And that again is, it's up to them, you know. It, uh, sometimes that can be forced on them and then that's different again because you, you're looking at something which is abusive. And sexuality in any form that is abusive is abhorrent mm -hmm. because there is always a victim involved. Um, but where that's not the case and where it's free choice and consent is involved, and people just develop as they they will throughout their life, absolutely fine, by me. It's only if someone were troubled, and genuinely so, and they weren't, say, troubled because someone else had suggested to them that they should be. And that does happen a lot. And this next question comes from my very favourite person, Nightchild. And Nightchild asks, <laughs> Perhaps this is a bit of a personal question, but... I have had dreams and daydreams that show me trying to accomplish something, but there is always an outside force that prevents me from accomplishing it. I believe it relates to a perfectionist neurosis, and I assume this is a message from the psyche preparing me for things to go wrong, but it is non-specific to any one area. Is this a frequent message for people you have worked with clinically, or is this perhaps too personal to identify its underlying suggestion? Well, that's, that's, that's uh, very interestingly phrased because he's obviously had a good look at that um, and come up with some possibilities himself. It doesn't sound unusual 
to me. Uh, to, to be honest, it's the kind of thing, the kind of scenario that the psyche will come up with. Um, I would suggest that without a fuller understanding of the personal context, it would be difficult to be specific. So we'd, we'd need to know more than that. Um, for example, how frustrated does he feel about his own potential? If he does, then the dream is complementing the attitude of consciousness. If not, it's compensating for it. This is just basic young 101 in terms of dream interpretation. Mm. That you, you look for those two factors. Uh, compensation, which is the usual one according to Jung, or complementarity, which is where you you uh, you actually agree, if you like, from the dream's perspective with the approach taken by the ego. But it just depends. It just depends what's in him. And when, when he says he, he he feels he might have a perfectionist attitude, then that might suggest might. But you know, it's stretching it without mm. knowing more. Would would you say? Yes, I would. That yeah. there's, there's a, a complementation going on there. Sorry, uh, a, um, a compensation going on there. Uh, we we need we need to know more. Yeah, probably need some more detail, wouldn't we, mm. to answer it fully? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm trying to read into it and see if I can find any more details, but there there aren't enough, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. We've been having some, some success. This is the thing with, with dream analysis. I know we do it on the Discord, and I know, Steve, you said that you don't take part for a variety of reasons, but lots of guys do, and they share dreams and everything else. Um, I, I really have realised that it is impossible to do dream analysis without speaking to the person, because or it is just a random ballpark shot and it comes to the point where like when i work with people now even if it's just friends or people who sign up at the sorcerer's apprentice trial by fire arthur's court here on patreon the ones where we have frequent contact uh, i i get to know you fairly well at least you know better than a stranger and so when it comes to present dreams even without talking to them about that particular dream i'd have a general idea of where the psyche and everything else is headed so it's kind of you know this is why like dream analysis books and everything else it just doesn't work it's it's a it's a therapeutic exercise it's, it's a self-development exercise and you've got to know yourself properly and so is the other person so uh yeah sorry we could be more help on that night child it's just innate to to the question yeah i mean for me the only thing that really stands out is is the use of the word perfectionist mm. um it's probably maybe the only part of the question we could talk about maybe in a in a general way mm. um mm. and the, the tendency towards perfectionism whatever that might mean mm. um what, what do you think, Steve? Oh yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I was just—I guess on the in, on the inside, I was just um, imaging uh, a scenario where someone would come in with that dream or with the mm. statements about themselves. That you know, it's it's part of the experience that you get, isn't it? When 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 you work yeah. uh, clinically, um, you would you would be put into a mode of operation in the moment that's uh, response to the whole person. Uh, but what would stand out would be that phrase, for example. Yeah. And then you kind of absorb the energy that's coming from that person and understanding that there's a series of dreams as well that they're speaking about. And then what you work with and what you contact in that moment is the whole, the whole thing, the whole person. So it's as if the dream is actually present then. Like if you if you can imagine a kind of a, a ground and the the, 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 dream, the dream or the the person who's coming is the figure mm. standing out against the ground. Mm. So it's almost as if the dream has brought the person in, and the, and the person is 
communicating on behalf of the dream, but the dream is this this big picture that stands be- or sits behind them. And you have to be really, really aware of that energy. And that's why you need to be really with someone. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be subtle nuances of communication and contact and uh, a sensory-based reaction in yourself. It can be that. It can be visceral. Uh, or it can be a sensation in your hands. It might be a bit of paresthesia, a bit of tingling. It might be a visual disturbance. It might be an, an unconscious movement in your body where you might find a finger will switch or you'll start to rock or move or turn from side to side. And as you do, you might literally pick up something different as if you were radar, you know, and you, you, you're going around and you're scanning the room. All of these things are important and you have to be so aware of your own reaction in the moment. And it's that nuance which is completely absent when yes. you start writing text, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, that, that's almost in keeping really with what I'm thinking mm. because I know for a fact that um, in psychiatric circles and so on uh, and in and in the culture more broadly that that word would be seized on yeah. and not necessarily in a positive way. Yeah. Um, and so I think what you're saying, Steve, again, it's the context, isn't it? Yes. Uh, clinically and the nuances between you and the person that you're working with yeah. that would allow you to reach a proper conclusion yeah. about what that meant yeah. for that person Absolutely. but I, I guess I'm again I'm cautioning about seeing it as a negative because that it, it tends to be used pejoratively doesn't yeah. it unfortunately yeah you know if you have perfectionist tendencies or you are a perfectionist that that, yeah. that is something to be resisted yeah absolutely and you need to know how to yeah. log on to a person don't yeah, you you do um I won't go into into detail obviously because it's an inappropriate medium as such to do it um, but that would be a gift. Yes, it would. An absolute gift. It would. Um, and of course, people sometimes come in with distractions, but you pick that up too. Yeah. But assuming it wasn't a distraction mm. and you know a defensive reaction, then a statement like that mm. from a person in a room, and you're in the room with them, uh, and the energy valency that, that, that's around, it's a field phenomenon, um, you can really utilise that. There's lots of things you can do and very, very quickly you can be in and accessing what you need to access in, in the moment and in that yeah. time. Uh, and you just can't get this with texts. No. And, uh, and you can't get it with dream books. No. And you can't get it by watching videos on YouTube or anything no. like that. No. Uh, these are relational skills. You know, there have been some people on the Discord, which is it's, it's almost funny, except it was obviously malignant, they were trying to uh, say on the Discord that, you know, define relate. What does it mean to relate? If you have to ask that, the, you're either malignant or you are so compressed in terms of your ego, in terms of your consciousness, that there's something almost psychiatric at work there, you know? I mean, everybody knows how to relate, everybody, in some way, you know? So saying that they don't understand what that means, define what is related. It's not an uncommon word, is it? No, not at all. It it just isn't. Not at all. And you know what it is because you do it. Mm. Uh, And if you get good at it, you certainly know what it is because you can analyse it and penetrate into it very easily. If you have to become so philosophical about it that it's just the ridiculous rumination of a hollow ego, then, as I say, you're either a malignant individual or you're stupid. Uh, or perhaps uh, perhaps unwell to be kind to them if, if it's that but relating is the most important thing when it comes to therapy you have to be able to log on to a person's way of making sense or nonsense 
of their experience and they bring everything with them you know they don't come in on their own they might think they do but they bring every relationship they've ever had they bring their parents with them even if they don't speak you know they bring their upbringing with them they bring the timeline it's a crowded room when there's only two people there and you have to know how to assess that just coming back to the word perfectionist again mm. for a moment and, and sort of uh, psychiatric diagnoses and, and the like, um, which is part of my concern really about yeah. people thinking it's it's automatically a, um, a negative, um, is that it's used, for example, um, in connection with people, say, who have eating disorders or have OCD yeah. and, and such like. Um but if I move away from that for a moment, I would I would actually consider myself to be something of a perfectionist, particularly when it comes to to my creative life, and I it it's actually assisted me in raising my game mm. of actually taking my work up a level. Um, so I guess it just depends how it's being expressed, how it's Good being point. used, yeah. and um, I don't think I could have done that with that because I you know I, I enjoy the attention to detail when I when I draw or paint uh, and if it didn't have that I don't I think I would be you know I could just wind the clock back I don't know 40 years and be doing what I was doing then um, but it has it has allowed me to step mm. things up mm. so it, it's mm. been it's been incredibly valuable in that yeah. regard yeah. Um, I think though there's a difference between between that and a pathological sense and, and using it as something that allows you to strive to be better and to improve whatever it is you happen to be doing. Um, the difference is, I guess, in knowing when to stop to, particularly with something, say, like a drawing, knowing when something is complete. Um, and it might be that, you know, there are some parts of it that you're not particularly pleased with or you feel that you could have developed more or whatever um but there may be other aspects of it that um have improved um to a great extent by <clears throat> by applying yourself and using that perfectionism as a as a driving force so yeah i think you've got to be very careful haven't you about you the, the the use of language and, and mm. how you self-suggest things and order and also to how um that might be fed by the culture by the environment in which you live but i, I found it to be a very a very productive thing yeah 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 i'd agree it's all a question of context yeah beware of uh, self-diagnosis complexes yes uh, and beware of other people's negative suggestions and see it as I think you're saying, mm. is a potentially very, very positive trait. Yes. That you may be under-applying or yes. misusing in some yes. sense. And yeah. Uh, yeah. look at it in that way. Well, the, the resistance or, or the opposing force might just be a kind of an inner opposition to actually pushing through mm. and improving something in a particular way. So, you know, it might be something to run with rather than Mm. come up against and and, and kind of yeah. um, kind of sort of cave in rather than actually using it to power through and improving yourself mm. 
I don't know if, if that helps to answer that in any way. Obviously, I'm applying it to myself here, but... Um, it's a general principle, it, it, though, isn't it? Yeah, it, mm. it, it's how I would conceive mm. of it. Certainly, if I apply it in a, in a productive way, in a creative way in my own life, that, that's mm. how I would utilise it. Because after all, it is, I mean, it, it's part of your life force, isn't it? If you want to perfect something, you want to make craft yeah. something as best you possibly can. Yeah. That's part of being alive and living and, and, and having an impact on things and on your environment. and mm. Yeah. Totally so, so maybe look at what those, if, if there are opposing forces, if there are things that are kind of, you know, compressing you or trying to prevent you from powering through or expressing yourself in a particular way, maybe have a look at what they might be. Yeah. Which will require some, some inner analysis, some inner reflection. Yeah, I want to say something as well briefly on, on the idea of dreams, just, just super quickly, because I've been asked very, very recently to appear on somebody's podcast to analyse the host's dreams in real time. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. It's like, it's not a good idea because it's, you know, you I understand the enthusiasm, but it's if you share your dreams with somebody and they, and they actually know what they're doing, you'll be revealing the most personal information you possibly can with that person. So it's like, if, if, if you want to analyze them in real time on a podcast, be my guest, but it's, you know, it's your funeral. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't advise something like that. But um, thank, thank you, Nightchild, for your question, as always. And uh, the third question today comes from Louise. And Louise says, what is meant by the word instinct? Do we have a finite number of nameable instincts? How do I learn to access and follow my instincts if I'm cut off from them? I've been suffering most of my life and feel generally as though I'm adrift at sea or fractured. Is this something that is dangerous for me to do on my own? First of all, the, um, the accepted understanding, even within the field of what instincts are, is too woolly and too diffuse. And there are hangovers uh, from the 19th century. I've mentioned this uh, before. The prejudice, the anthropocentric, the human-centric uh, bias that, that was prevalent then has carried forward that, for example, only humans can possess consciousness, um, that animals, whatever animal, has no level of consciousness, and that animals are run by instinct, and the humans have mastered instinct, and they are conscious. Um, and that is just completely wrong. Um, several species of, of animal have been demonstrated mm. to... Uh, to possess consciousness in a way which is very, very close to human, not in terms of intelligence or information processing, but in terms of self-awareness, definitely it's there. But that kind of thinking created a split. So if you like, instincts were relegated into the deep basement, down into the foundations, right out of psychology at all. Um, Freud did emphasize instincts a lot um, but he was more looking at the frustration of instincts and that leading into pathology, and it had its value. Jung tended to give them a nod but ignore them and still think of them as being principally outside of the realm of psychology, which is a mistake. Then later we had uh, disciplines like ethology, which is the study, originally anyway, of animal behaviour in a natural environment, not in a psychology lab. And they gave the sharpest, up to that point, resolution of what instincts were because you're seeing behaviours in their natural form, unaltered by human observation. Um, and it also became very, very clear 
that instinctive behaviours were not just reflex reactions, which a lot of people used to believe in the 19th century, some still do now, but they were whole situations anticipated in the genome that would release uh, a bandwidth of uh, reactions, and they were goal-directed. I mean, uh, the, the, the purpose of our sex drive, if you like, our instinct to reproduce, is reproduction. So you can say it's teleological, which means that the, the goal is anticipated in the actual behaviour itself. So the problem, though, is that because of the way we construct our language, we, we tend to break things up into small chunks. And we say, that's an instinct for this, that's an instinct for that. It's highly unlikely that instincts are broken up like that at a genetic level. You know, and in terms of their expression as well, because so many of what we would call individual instincts basically do the same thing, but from a slightly different angle, then people are very often reduced to saying generalities like uh, the instinct to survive. Your survival instinct or instincts, sometimes people say in the plural, because there's an awareness that it, there's just not one thing that contributes to this. And this is a problem which appears in Jung's archetypal theory as well, when suddenly archetypes start to trip over one another about what they actually do, what turf they can claim as their own, um, and it really gets woolly. However, what we can say is that instinct, instincts are demonstrable. We can see them at work. They're absolutely there. Uh, complexes too are absolutely there and absolutely real. And if you work deep enough with complexes, you always find instincts. You find some kind of issue over lifespan developments and instincts that have been triggered. Instinct or instincts in the plural, however you want to conceive of that. So at one level you have to use a lot of intuition. I don't mean Jungian intuition, I just mean intuition in the ordinary sense of the word to perceive the fact that there are instinctive pressures because you can feel them. They're guiding you towards behaviours. So yeah, there are a lot of instincts out there and really you know when there's a problem because you start to become neurotic when you're out of kilter with the pressure. If you want to narrow it down to experimental verification of instincts, then ethologists are the best people to look for or look at. Ethologists, that's E-T-H, E-F-O-L, O-G-I-S-T-S. People like Conrad Lorenz, who did work on imprinting in birds, when the, uh, you could say the instinct to <coughs> imprint on a caregiver, a parent in the bird world, could be transferred off onto an object that was just shaped, say like a bird's head. Or if some uh, chicks were to recognise, say in this example, Conrad Lorenz, they would believe that Conrad Lorenz was their mother instinctively and would follow him everywhere because they'd imprinted on him on the basis of an existing anticipation which you know would have some kind of virtual image, which is what Jung said archetypes had, oddly enough, an indefinite virtual image. But Jung tried to split archetype and instinct off, apart from the statement where he said that archetypes are a kind of self-portrait of the instincts. Well, if that's true, you almost don't need the level of explanation that we refer to as being archetypes. What mm. we need to do is to get to the instincts and then find out how they collide with society and culture and produce complexes and so forth. But yeah, we can 
we can say there are some basic instincts and then there are instinctive be behaviors that emerge from that, those general patterns. So they are general patterns in the same way that Jung would talk about archetypes, but it would not resolve them down, for example, to be uh, a king or a queen or any of these other images that get absorbed in. But suppose on, on the subject of, say, a king or a queen, right? And if you're watching a film, there's a nice narrative there, which, which is illustrative of experiences that we can resonate with. But ask yourself then, if you look at the archetype of the queen or the king, what does that mean to be a king or a queen? What's the actual instinctive meaning? Can you see the instinctive patterns that are there? Well, for a start, you've got a dominance hierarchy. You've got people who are at the apex of their culture and their society. Mm. And they're there for a reason, because other people subsume themselves to them in that dominant stack. Then you'd have to look at the advantages and disadvantages of functioning in a group like that for survival. So your survival instincts are there. Then there's the aspirational elements too, which is also instinctive to go and achieve the best that you can be and to get resources and control of resources. That might mean that you identify with the king or the queen. You want to be like them. So it's very easy, actually, if you take that approach to deconstruct what appears to be archetypes and archetypal narratives and find out what instincts are present. Then you know that the instincts are the authors of these so-called archetypes from within. And the, the paper that they're written on, if you like, the pen is in the genome and then they write. The, the image that you're given then is cultural and it's specific to a culture. I remember when I was a child, I remember, I've got fortunately been blessed with, with good recall, and I was brought up in a semi-rural area, we could, we could look out over fields, meadows and trees and so on, and it was a wonderful experience, a, a natural environment as a child, and my mother who was an ISFP, a very deeply receding introverted sensing ISFP, uh, seemed to me to be just somehow part of this landscape, and so I thought she was the font of all understanding about the land. And my father, who was a very concrete man, he was an ISTJ, would go out and earn the money, but he would be out in the world, and he represented the physical concreteness of things. And I had an older brother we mentioned in, uh, the other day, and he was so much older than me, seven years older. He was like, uh, just like the fabric of the house that somehow was like wallpaper, you know, he was just there. He was part of the background that meant I could relate to my parents, because all children think they're special over their siblings, you know. But the thing about my mum is that I interpreted a lot of things through her type, but more importantly her character, and then set against the background. And I can remember mm. asking her when I saw this, this medieval drama being acted out on the television, I said, Mum, what, what's a king? Never heard of that before. And why has he pulled a sword out from a stone? What does that mean? Oh, the king, she said, you know, in this very basic way. The king is the most important person. We're all under the king. And straight away I got it at an instinctive level. Being king is good. Being king means top, top of the pile, hierarchy. And I could look out the window and I could see the king there in the field, in the countryside, and, and I could get it. And I felt like I understood things that I'd not experienced. I felt like I was connected to my ancestors. Yeah, I felt that because I'd been given the key by my mother. Yeah, the imprinter of my relating function. And in this sense, relating to the past. And years later, I would interpret that as being archetypal. Now I know better. It wasn't, you know. What I was interpreting and experiencing were instincts which were coalescing around an image that was provided for me by my mother. 
uh, and it, they took on a cultural form, i.e. King Arthur and Excalibur and the stone, which I then internalised and made sense of on the basis of my instincts. They then, then generated lifespan development fantasies about becoming a king, which really is still instinctive, because that's all about getting resources and being top of the pile and having a better chance of surviving and getting yourself to queen, the ideal you know, breeding mate, reproductive mate. All of these things fundamentally are instinctive. So if you want to know you know, what instincts are or how many there are, all you really need to do is resolve that down and say, where are they now in my life? And the ones that are important to you will communicate themselves. But you may have to penetrate through the imagery, the clutter that you've interjected from the environment or from the influence of other people to get to those instincts. And that's why I go on about archetypal fantasies. You have to be careful with them. They don't reveal, they disguise. Unless you're switched on enough to understand that behind them are instincts. And those instincts connect you, believe it or not, directly to your ancestors. Right down through your DNA. That's where the ancestral spirit lives. It's in your genome. And it's in the intention for you to live that out through your instincts by going out into the world and into the environment and actualizing yourself. These archetypal images you just pick up along the way. That's all they are. And then the interactions that you get through your lifespan are what form the complexes. And the complexes can help and they can hinder. So really, that, that's what I would say. Look at, look at the instincts that are active in your own life right now. And that, that will perhaps open one's eyes a little, you know, uh, to what may be really going on. Well, we know when we're out of touch with them because we tend to make bad decisions, don't yeah, we, about things? Absolutely. Practical, so, practical again. Yeah. So yeah. Um, you talk about the key. We could be talking about the key in Bluebeard again, yes. in effect, because yeah. the key in that is a question. It's a yes. question that you ask yourself about, you know, what lies beneath? What is it that I'm not seeing in a particular situation or, or in myself? So just, just a simple orientation like that to yourself and to what might be happening is sometimes enough mm. to put you back mm. in touch with them. Yeah, yeah. so you can see there how uh, an archetypal story or narrative yeah. which is turned up as a fairy tale yeah. or a myth or a legend yes. actually leads you back to instinct. They yes, all do. Yes, Every very much so. Every one of them does. Yeah. If they didn't, they would be rootless. Yeah. Rootless. They'd have no foundation. They'd have no meaning at all. Mm. Um, the neurosis that people can get into, though, by attaching themselves to archetypal images is to be absorbed by the image so much that they become part of the fabric. So the external fantasy and the internal fantasy blend together and you're cut off from your instincts mm. and you can't solve your complexes. Mm. Therefore, you can't individuate. Mm. You're trapped. So getting back to instincts will just clear the decks yeah. and you'll understand then what these archetypal narratives, so-called, are all about. Mm. And you can also deal with your complexes then as well. Yeah. Well, the lesson in Bluebeard, in effect, is this is what will happen to you if you, you make bad relationship choices, yeah. if you don't see someone as they really are, yeah. if your instincts aren't intact. Yeah. If you're a woman, then, you know, this, this could be your fate. Yeah. So you know, kind of get in tune with yeah. them now and uh, avoid that suffering, avoid yes. ending up like Bluebeard's wives. Yeah, so there's a cultural narrative, Yeah. something from the outside that's passed on culturally, uh, as in a Richard Dawkins yes. meme, you know, Richard Dawkins' understanding of memes, mm. um, psychosocial genes, uh, 
and they resonate then with the genome and with the instincts which actualize the mm. genome. Mm. But psychologically, you create you create the archetypal image uh, as the meat in the sandwich again between the biology and the socio environment. So it's really really important not to get distracted by these these things. They're real and they're helpful, but they are primarily delivered through culture and through learning, which is why they form complexes on the way in. They form associations of learning, mm. but they are not the thing in themselves. And the most important thing are the instincts. The instincts are there to look after the genome, and the genome wants to actualize itself and to maximize itself as well. Could you give a case study example? From yeah, please. Do. Yeah. Is that okay, James? Just very briefly, uh, from within my own family, um, young woman gets married, Catholic background, makes the wrong relationship choice as it happens by her instincts uh, and then through uh, social and cultural pressure stays in that marriage even though it, it's bad for her and uh, later down the line, many years down the line, she develops agoraphobia as a result of that and, uh, and that then becomes... Um, a symbol, if you like, of um, the the maladaptation, the fact that she didn't pay attention to her instincts properly, um, and also continued to abuse herself by by staying in that bad relationship. And when you think about agoraphobia um, in, in terms of how it manifests in somebody's life, one of the things that it does is it prevents you from going out, and if you think about how the instincts might come into play there, the, your instincts might be pushing you uh, on the one hand to go out. And if you go out, you, well, you might just find a better relationship than the one you've got. But then there's the anxiety that's generated. You know, if, if you're a Catholic woman, you believe in marriage uh, and staying with someone, uh, then you, you, you become divided between what the instincts want you to do and the socio-cultural pressure to stay in that relationship and to yeah. do the right thing. And, and that's just one example. We see this kind of thing turn up over and over again. Yeah. So again, in there is a lesson about paying attention to your instincts. Um, and then they will serve you mm. as as opposed to, you yeah. know, Can we disclose who you. this was? You can yeah. if you wish, of yeah, course. This was yeah. Pauline's mum. And when we, we put it to her, <clears throat> which we did that that's why she won't go out because as Sigmund Freud said this is a Freudian solution that if you do every man you meet will be more attractive than your husband that was a jaw-dropping moment because the oh, gap yeah. the gap closed in her neurosis between her instincts <clears throat> and her fear yes. so if you can imagine then that the, the the fear hiding inside was just squeezed out like toothpaste from a tube mm. gone mm. and the gap was closed mm. and she realized mm. the truth of it that that's why she'd been agoraphobic all of those years yeah was for that reason. Yeah. Um, no amount of systematic desensitization or cognitive restructuring or CBT homework would have done anything. It had to penetrate down in an immediacy, in a, a moment that penetrated into her heart and into her feeling to understand, yes, that's what's happened here. Yeah. You, you're, you're Roman Catholic, but guess what? You've got instincts. Yes. You know? Mm. And your Catholicism is external because she didn't really believe it. Mm except in a, in a fearful, superstitious yes. way. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... Yeah. Instincts, yeah, I go on about them a lot, but guess what, they're good for you. Mm. And they, they can cure people by just by getting in touch with them. It can blow a lot of things away. Mm. 
just to add one other thing because it might be pertinent to some of the things that we've we've talked about today as well in that she was um she was a fantastic artist yes yeah, she was yeah she was um, really good Yes, um, she went to art school uh, in the days when not many people went mm. um, and, and she was a fantastic illustrator and so on uh, and, and because of the, the nature of the relationship she was in which just destroyed her creativity she ended up literally putting all her work in the bin yeah. so it was, it was akin to putting herself in the bin yeah, essentially it, yeah, it, uh, it, it did, it did yeah. um, so yeah. a, cre a creativity which could have put her in touch with herself or yes. with her psyche properly uh, started out great and then it was processed mm -hmm. through an art school and mm -hmm. then it was overlain with a further layer of processing through a Catholicism and then her marriage. So the fracture line went from rim to centre on yeah. her plate, you know, and it couldn't sustain any, any weight any further before it would crack. Mm -hmm. So the only solution was to develop a neurosis. Mm -hmm. And that neurosis was symbolic of what she needed to do, but at the same time trapped her because she focused on the fear of being in the neurosis rather than the fact that the fear was encouraging her to solve it. And then this is the way the complexes work. Sadly, you know, they're double-sided. They will trick you. They will fight to survive. And the solution hides inside them in plain sight very often. Uh, and the subtlety is realising the whole situation that a person is in when you, when you tackle something like this. Mm -hmm. It's not to simply say you have to desensitise your fear. because That just doesn't work, you know. It just doesn't. It's, it's a load of nonsense because all that will happen is you get a dose effect. After a while, it will, it will fade, even if you successfully recondition someone say with, with a phobia like that, they call it social phobia now rather than agoraphobia, or oh, that's another invention anyway they add on to it. But the reason a person is in that state is the most important thing of all. And as Jung himself uh, observed, very often a neurosis is a failed attempt at self-cure, which is what I'm saying, you know, that inside the complex itself is the secret to its own solution. But what you will find is at the back of the complex, hiding in the corner or in a cupboard or at the back of the cave, there's a whole bunch of instincts sitting there. Yeah, and that's the secret that the key unlocks. Yes. Not archetypes. Mm. Not. No, sorry. You can play with them later and have fun with them when you're feeling better. But don't let them distract you. It doesn't work in real life. Thank you, Louise, for that question. Hope that helps, of course. And um, we're going to move on to the final question today. Got to settle in because it's a fairly long one. And it comes from my friend Pacifist. Pacifist says, When I pay attention to my dreams, they tend to have very vivid content and consistent characters throughout. I delineate my dreams in two forms, mundane and fantastical. In regards to the fantastical dreams, I have found that they consist of both re reoccurring characters as well as new ones time to time. So much so that I am in the process of writing a fantasy setting based on these dreams. I also have many daydreams that, when going about mundane chores as normal, fully flesh out parts of this world or create fully coherent stories in short spans of time. To what degree is this phenomenon a mere delving into delusional fantasy? More specifically, to what degree would such a phenomenon simply be a direction of libido or instinct trying to get something across to me? I will note that, in depressed states, these stories often peter out only to explode sometime after. Sort of a rambling of the mind that goes non-stop unless I divert my attention from them, be it video games, mundane obligations, etc. As delusional as they may or may not be, I have found the expression of these images to be one of the few things to get me out of my depressive, nihilistic states, the other being productive work such as programming software. 
as if some sense of meaning is derived from them. There is more to this that I could go on about, but I do not want to extend this question for too long. Then he says, in case it's relevant, I'm also an INTJ. So there you go. What do you guys think? Yes. Yeah, it's, yes. Not, it's not delusional. Rich in a world. Uh, with yeah. respect to what mm. he's, how he's framed it, it's not delusional. Mm. If it was delusional, there wouldn't be any question. He'd just believe it. Mm. So, no, it's not delusional. If he's just um, authentically, and I've no reason to think that he, that he isn't, but if he's just giving an authentic account of his reflexivity, that is his capacity to analyse his ongoing experience, um, then there's no delusion there at all. And it sounds like it's a creative process. It does. Because yeah. Gareth's like that. Yeah. He's got a rich, rich inner world, he hasn't has, he? He has. And yeah. uh, you get that yeah. with INTJs. You do, very much so. It mm. seems to be a feature of that, uh, that type as the personality is expressed through it. Mm. Yeah, so there's probably a lot of creativity there. And... Uh, I would say, although the, the the content is specific to him, it's the normal homeostasis, even describing how depression may be relieved by engaging with it. Well, that's yes. a creative process. Yes. And in his uh, circumstances, it seems that creativity is imagery-based internally. Um, perhaps if he could translate that into something more solid externally beyond programming, mm. um, although that that's also potentially creative, depending on how you define it, but if he, he could use another kind of creative medium, perhaps one that he's not used thus far, and work with the resistance to that, because remember, resistance to creativity uh, is a useful thing to bash up against because very often you get a new door opening for you. Yeah, sorry to interject. Yeah. That. I guess that's what I was trying to say in the, the earlier question mm. with about perfectionism. Yes. And a, and an opposing force. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, yes, it's it's the same. Yeah, well, please, it, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. It just it just um, it just reminded me of that as well. But you you're absolutely right. You, you mm. do have to use that, don't you? You do. You, you you don't you don't really get beyond a certain point at any one time no. a, unless you try and sidestep things. Yes. You know. Um, Think like a, a judo practitioner might about using the opponent's weight and force. We'll use the resistance's mm. force to mm. unbalance it and mm. get around it. Mm. You know, it's, it's it's an oft-used metaphor that, but it's applicable. You know, w when you're working with the psyche, because sometimes it's it's a little bit behind where you're at. You know, you might be ready to move on before it is, or it just hasn't noticed the fact that you are. And that'll be because you're not communicating in the way that it might want in those circumstances I've just described. So in that sense, you need to you need to you know tackle with it a little bit. I, I wouldn't recommend that you take it on on the inside. Uh, that's impolite for a start, uh, and you know you also might upset it. So if you do it externally through something creative, yeah. well then that gives you a tangible. Uh, medium for creating a dialectic between you and it and it will generally accept that as being a polite way of approaching it you know of course as you say it's not a delusional fantasy and it's the thing like we're not against fantasy uh, young young to live by at all fantasy is an absolutely wonderful thing it's 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 fantasy when it keeps you trapped that would be that would be the general problem so for example video games and everything else it's like there's also nothing wrong with those as, as you've mentioned but it's a case of Okay, why are you playing video games and not doing something else? Um, but I think it's a, it's a moot point that everything that you've said, I think, is immensely valuable. Where it goes wrong is where it gets processed through a theory like Carl Jung's, for example, which has uh, inherent weaknesses, should we say, that will allow people to start to harm themselves 
through um, and if you process your fantasy through that you're not living authentically with yourself and your own capacity to generate information and material through a real relationship with your own unconscious you can't do it by proxy through Carl Jung or his books or anything like that you have to do it yourself um, and if you have an inclination towards fantasy and then find Jung's collected works for example uh, as a, a medium and therefore a filter to express that through you're not going to be able to do it because let's face it his his capacity for fantasy was at the extreme end of the extreme end uh, and if you, you truly engage with that you're going to get lost probably unless by some chance of fate you're about 100 IQ points ahead of him and that your your intuition is well beyond his capacity and your life circumstances are as comfortable or more than his so you can contain whatever you pull up from the psyche quite easily uh, but unless you have all of those advantages I'd say allow yourself to be inspired by him by all means but you have to work on yourself your your own prima materia yeah he isn't he's not he's not your philosopher's stone you are and, and you have to work on yourself so watch what you do with your fantasies it's the same with some occult systems as well some of the more disjointed and and loose ones that, that aren't really tight and you know are completely fantasy based if you process yourself through that you're going to end up in a, a right mess so be careful what you do with your fantasy but the problem with a psychological system like Carl Jung's is it it carries the appearance of being valid in a scientific way uh, that perhaps some of these other things don't so it's an even better trap for the unwary people who tend to be highly intuitive whether it's either yeah. introverted or extroverted mm. do have a bit of a resistance to the mundane oh yeah 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 they, they do um, and that's likely to be a, a genetic setting too because there are advantages uh, I think in intuition uh, extroverted is the most obvious advantage because you're going to seek out possibilities in the mm. environment mm. So for our early ancestors, that style of processing would have been useful amongst a pool of other possibilities, such as extroverted sensing, which is also of value in a, a subsistence and, uh, and uh, base level survival sort of environment, as in the, you know, the Paleolithic or Mesolithic even. Um, in, internally, intuition will be valuable because you're more likely to be able to access the unconscious and its spontaneous images so your shamanistic traditions will value that that kind of thing mm. yeah i mean we we were chatting to someone recently um guy who was an enfp and i know it's a bit of a mundane example but he, he found it almost unbearable to have to just go and get the weekly shop the yeah. idea of having to focus on going out and you know buying yeah. groceries was just like uh, appalling to him yeah um, that's that's me as well is 100%. it yes yeah. 100%. <laughs> so, um, so it might be uh, sorry about the, the light so it might be uh, extroverted intuition which is the issue then because mm. um, ENFP and INTP ENTP whatever they're, yes. they're very different aren't they yeah. except in that yeah. sense yeah so, so I guess the, the, the positive side of, of the mundane world though is, is that it can give form to things it can give form oh, yes. to fantasy and ideas and, yes. and, and, and allow it to go out into the yes, world I, and actually see, yes, have some inherent mean. meaning to it if, if for yeah. example as I think you were suggesting that if, if this particular um, uh, person is, is able to find um, maybe a different creative medium to what they're mm. used to using a sensory one, a sensory yeah. one then, then he might be able to uh, capture some of that in a form that then gives it a 
another kind of meaning or another kind yeah. of life that's out there yeah. in the in the mundane world. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree, and that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Practical. And then other people can benefit from it, then, can't they? Yeah, indeed. I mean, from his creativity. Yeah, which would be lovely. You know, it's, it's a really nice thing, and, and and there's a reward in that an yes, inherent reward. There is, yes. In, uh, in in bringing pleasure to other people yes. in that way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Through having that capacity mm. to to be able to do that, because not everybody can. No, uh, although we could probably all have a go at it, can't we? we, can, we yeah. Yeah. yeah in one yeah. form or another. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Pacifist, for that question. And D, thank you to everybody. Currently, we are now at the bottom of our reservoir. We've done, over the last few days, we've recorded four of these. And it's um, we, we very much enjoy it. But the questions keep coming in, and we will keep responding. And, of course, if you'd like to be a part of that process, then you can sign up at the $10 tier or higher on Patreon. You can ask your question. We'll add it to the reservoir. We'll have a bit of a kick about. And, um, yeah, it'll be good. It'll be fantastic. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Pauline. See you thank all again you, next James. time. Thank you, James. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.